Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Graham Weir. This is my second conversation with Graham. In the first conversation, Graham, a hearing rehabilitation specialist in private practice and a personal friend, told the story of his experience of hearing loss and God's hand in his personal and professional life. In this conversation, Graham will talk about hearing aids. He has entitled this material, Hearing Aids, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Graham will also share his insights into coping with hearing loss and tinnitus and how family and friends can help those with a hearing loss. If you have a friend or family member suffering from a hearing disability or tinnitus, you'll find this information really helpful. Welcome, Graham. Thank you, Barry. Graham, you have the unique title of hearing rehabilitation specialist rather than the more common title of audiologist or audiometrist. How does your work differ from conventional hearing services? Okay, well, conventional hearing services, uh, their main focus is on restoration of hearing and using technology. That's fine as far as it goes. Even with implantable technology like bionic ears and uh, bone anchored hearing aids, all this is a very important part of what we do. But it's not the end of the story. It's only one half of the communication paradigm because hearing loss is part of communication. But it's not the only part. It's only the receptive side of communication. There's also the expressive side, how people talk, what they say, because what they say will affect how people respond to them. And it's the responses in communication that cause people to be rejected socially. Hearing rehabilitation looks at the whole picture, not just the technology in the hearing. I guess it's really important um, for a person with a hearing loss to be able to communicate effectively in any context in which they're in. Now, we know that there's superficial communication. There's, that's the sort of communication where we're just talking about the weather or, or greeting a, a neighbour. And then there's the level where we might be working with a workmate uh, to, to do a job, and so we're exchanging information and so forth. And then there's that third level communication, which is really about meaning. So a person with a hearing loss has to be able to communicate at each of those three levels, not yes. just the superficial, not just the intermediate level where you're exchanging information, but also at that deeper level. And I imagine that if a person is miscuing on that first level, then that's going to be a discouragement for another person to try to communicate with them. Tell me about some of the problems that a person with a hearing loss is going to confront in, in, that communication, in that communication role. Okay. The three levels of communication are essential for the maintenance of a relationship or the development of one. If we make inappropriate, inappropriate responses at one level, the relationship can't proceed to the next level or the next level. With hearing loss, it's even more difficult to progress to that third level in relationship because that third level is where the nutrition is. That's where the bonding in a relationship occurs because people make uh, appropriate responses to each other. They talk about the things that are meaningful to each other, uh, feelings, relationships, religion, money, diet, health, attitudes, goals, that kind of thing. You only talk about that on the third level. That's essential for relationships to stay together. If someone has a hearing loss, 
it's much more difficult for them to progress from the first to the second to the third level. Because they can't hear properly, they often make inappropriate responses. So the people who hear those inappropriate responses, it will, as you say, it's miscuing. It will cause the one who's trying to communicate with them to revert back to a lower level of communication. Consequently, hearing impaired people can get very frustrated when it comes to relationships or trying to develop relationships because if they keep making inappropriate responses all the time, they can't get past the first level. And very often that's the case. That's the same thing happens with people who, who speak another language, who come to Australia, can't speak English. They can't get to the third level in English. They can do it in their own language, but not in English. And so it's very hard for them to establish meaningful relationships with English-speaking people because it's their second language. Until they become fluent in that language, it's almost impossible. That's why they tend to congregate together where they can talk to each other on the third level and they feel fulfilled, communicatively speaking. Whereas someone who can't speak the local language, they can't feel have the same experience with people who use English. Consequently, hearing impaired people also can find themselves isolated just like an ethnic group. And they may tend to congregate together in their own group with people who understand their hearing problem so they can talk on the third level with them. Now, a lot of people in their lifetimes experience some level of hearing loss. So this is an important topic to almost all of us, isn't it? Mm. It's very isolating if you can't get basic communication going and be understood. Mm. Uh, and that's a disincentive for other people to try to communicate with you exactly. at that second and third level. Exactly. And that if a person's not getting the communication at those three levels, it can also affect their personality, their exactly. attitudes. Exactly. Uh, they'll withdraw from social situations. Exactly. It affects their self-esteem, their lives yes. in, in a pretty devastating sort of way. Yes, they can become angry, frustrated, aggressive, and, and uh, you know, hit out at other people, get very angry in their attitudes and their speech, which simply causes more social rejection. Hmm. So it's a vicious spiral. Unless they realise what's going on or unless someone shows them what's going on and helps them develop expressive communication techniques to overcome that problem, they're just a vicious spiral. They just get worse and worse. We're going to talk later in the program about how a person can support a person, a friend or a family member, with, with a hearing disability. So we'll look at that in more detail later. But I'd like to turn now to the substance of our discussion today, which is hearing aids. You have entitled this material, Hearing Aids, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly. So let's look at the good in terms of he modern hearing aids. The good news in terms of modern hearing aids is, of course, they're getting smaller, and lighter and smarter and waterproof and dustproof. Um, and you also have, um, some of them are Bluetooth. They have yeah, Bluetooth. wireless Bluetooth. They're getting smarter because they have wireless Bluetooth technology which allows the hearing aid to integrate electronically with the television set, with the mobile phone, even with smart watches. So they, it's much easier for them to interface with electronic devices now than it ever has been. And some of these are smaller. Yes. And they go further into the ear canal. Completely invisible. So that's the advantage. It's invisible. But that can also be a disadvantage, can't it? Because exactly. if a person can't see 
that you have a hearing aid, they don't know that you have a hearing disability. No. And so when you miss cue, that might be even more devastating. So there's a, a case for actually having a visible hearing aid, isn't That's there? That's right, there is, yes, yes. Otherwise, people might think the problem's not with your ears, it's between your ears. One of the, one of the problems with hearing aids, I understand, is the whistling noise from wind. So yes. if it's further into the ear canal, does it solve that problem? It does, solve it completely. You don't get any more wind noise than somebody with normal hearing would get on a windy day. So that's the good. That's the good. Is there any other good that we can talk about? Mostly the waterproofing and dustproofing. You can now swim with some hearing aids on and they won't be affected by moisture at all. Now, what's the bad? The bad news is earwax. Nobody's yet solved the problem to stop earwax from damaging hearing aids. You still have to keep them clean. You still have to keep your ears clean. Um, they can be stopped completely from earwax. Another bad news factor is if they don't cure hearing problems. No one's yet invented a hearing aid that will cure hearing problems. Because the problem is, in, in most cases of hearing loss, the damage is in the cochlea or the auditory nerves. That means that your cochlear hair cells are dead, they're lying down, they're not working. A hearing aid is not going to make those hair cells stand up and work again. Mm -hmm. It can only make the remaining hair cells in the cochlear work a bit harder. So they don't cure hearing problems. That's the bad news. And the third bad piece of bad news is it's not possible for a hearing professional to get inside somebody's head and listen to what's coming out of that hearing aid. So they depend on formula, science, technology to set that hearing aid up for that person's particular hearing loss. Everybody's different. Everybody's got a freak, different frequency response. Everybody's got different levels of tolerance of loud noise. It all has to be programmed by the hearing professional into that hearing aid. And the only way they can know if they've done a good job of that is by getting feedback from the patient and also to look at what we have in formula, we have target curves. When we set a hearing aid up, it's set up according to a formula and we have to look at that to see if it matches that formula fairly well, make sure there's no peaks and troughs in the response. But lastly, we've got to rely on the response of the patient. And initially, the patient can't give an accurate feedback because they've had no experience with it. So it's important for the patient to get trials of hearing aids, ask for trials before they actually pay for the thing. They might have to pay up front, but at least if they get a money-back trial, they can give their brain time to adapt to it. The brain has to go through a learning curve. The brain has to learn to accept the new auditory stimuli that's coming up the auditory pathway. It to, has to learn to accept it and adapt to that. Typically, the first thing a patient will notice when they put a hearing aid on for the first time is their own voice is louder. Mm -hmm. And that's disconcerting to some. If the audiologist hasn't told the patient that's going to happen, they get a shock. And in some cases, they won't even wear the hearing aid or they'll reject it completely. So they must understand that the first thing that's going to happen is their own voice is going to be much louder. It takes a couple of weeks to adapt to that. If they don't adapt, then the audiologist needs to adjust the parameters of the hearing aid settings to minimise that until their brain can get used to it. So how long does this process take to get the, the, the brain functioning with the hearing aid in sync? It can take two weeks to three months. Depends how young the person is, how agile their brain is, how well they adapt to it, and also the big factor is attitude. 
Do they have an adaptive attitude? Are they prepared to cooperate with the technology? Do they want to make themselves user-friendly to other people as much as possible? Because when you think about it, if you have a hearing problem and it's impacting relationships, other people have to repeat to you, that sort of kind of, that's that kind of thing. If you do nothing about that hearing problem, all it does is shift responsibility for the consequences to other people. Mm. You're saying, I'm okay, Jack, and that's fine. You might be able to cope with it. But the problem is other people can't cope with it. They have to repeat. They have to get your attention before they speak. They have to tolerate the TV at a louder volume. All these things put an imposition on other people. It shifts the handicap from you to them. So it's very important to, to accept that it's an imposition on other people. It's not just your own hearing problem. It's their communication problem. It's very important to have an attitude Yes, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to make myself as user-friendly as possible. So, so if you're fitting a hearing aid, you're going to be talking to the person with a hearing loss like this? You're actually going to be telling them about what they can expect? Exactly. And, and also, I like to have the, the relationship partner involved, the marriage partner involved in that. I do simulations of their hearing loss so they can see what that person is hearing. They can actually hear what that person is hearing with their hearing loss. They can see the difference a hearing aid makes and I can talk to them too about the, the benefits and limitations of hearing aids and how to cope with this. It's very important to have both together, not just one person. I went to a seminar once where they were doing those simulation exercises and that was really helpful to help you understand what a hearing loss is like mm. because a hearing loss can be one of the most devastating of all the disabilities, can't it? Yes, it's socially des desolating and isolating. Yes. And Helen Keller actually said... Of the two disabilities she had, total blindness and total deafness, she said, blindness isolates you from things, but deafness isolates you from communication. Mm. And the deafness, because it isolates you from communication, is more damaging to mental health than just being isolated from things. She could cope with the blindness more than she could cope with the deafness. Now you've noticed that um, some people with... A, hearing a severe hearing loss, and perhaps from birth, are better adjusted than those who have maybe to a mild to a moderate hearing loss mm. as an adult or uh, as a child. Yes, if they know sign language. If they have a group of people they can communicate with, even in sign language, on a third level. So that third level communication where you're talking about the things that really matter in life. The, the Very important that, for mental health. Things that give meaning to life. It's really important to have that level of communication. Absolutely. So you would be explaining that to the, the, the spouse of the person who's got, exactly. the, got the hearing issue? Exactly. They're people are usually stunned when they hear these concepts. They've never heard them before. They realise it applies to life in general, to marriage relationships, to all kinds of relationships, whether you've got a hearing problem or not. And then they see that the implications of hearing loss is it affects your ability to get to that third level on a regular basis. So the person with a hearing loss and their, uh, and their spouse would need to understand these issues and to make sure that they schedule time, not only just for the superficial conversations, Absolutely. but also for those deeper level conversations. Absolutely. Just feeding people with hearing aids doesn't solve that problem. Hmm. It leaves this great gap. If a, a person has a mild hearing loss, or even a moderate one, the hearing aid, yes, does a great job of restoring that ability to communicate on the third level. But it doesn't necessarily result in more communication on the third level. You find plenty of people with normal hearing who are lousy communicators. 
They can't talk on the third level. They don't know how. Yes. So hearing loss just makes that situation worse. The person needs to learn how to be a good communicator in the first place hmm. if they're going to cope with hearing loss. So the good thing is the technology is getting smarter and mm. better, and the bad thing is that AIDS are still only AIDS. They're not a cure for, for hearing loss. What's the ugly bit? The ugly bit is what's happening lately, like many things, many products in the marketplace, they're moving to the internet. And uh, some companies have set up organisations to market or sell hearing aids on the internet. Sounds like a great idea. But the problem is hearing aids are not, some, are not the same as other consumer electronics. These things are like false teeth, like glasses. They've got to be prescribed. They've got to be fitted by professionals. And with hearing aids, it's always the aftercare bit. So they have to be personalised? They have to be personalised. And, and hearing aids, they can break down. They can stop working because of wax or something else. They can be incorrectly set. The person can adapt to them incorrectly. I find in my experience, you can't, you can't just fit a hearing aid to someone, say goodbye, good luck. They will come back and back and back, maybe half a dozen times to a year. It's very important that that professional help is there when something goes wrong. The idea of buying hearing aids on the internet holds up as the attraction, the price. And of course the price is much cheaper because the aftercare package is missing. And you get the ugly feeling when you bought one of these things on the internet thinking you've saved yourself a lot of money only to find there's more to the picture than they told you about. You've got to have an aftercare package. When we fit hearing aids, the price is higher than they will pay on the internet, quite a bit higher, but that includes any adjustments, any aftercare they may need for a period of three years or longer. So a person looking for a hearing aid needs to understand that the, um, the package they get from a person in the local area is likely to be a better deal in the longer term. Much better. To buy, yeah, to buy hearing aids on the internet is false economy. Now tinnitus is um, a pretty uh, major problem for some people. They're ringing in the ears, whistling, whatever you want to call it. And it's particularly bad when people are at rest and they and uh, maybe lying on their pillow and they can hear it whistling away. Sure. What is tinnitus and what can people do to alleviate it to some extent? Tinnitus, nobody knows exactly what's doing this, but we have got a clue from research. And we think tinnitus is not actually coming in the ears, from the ears, it's coming from the auditory cortex in the brain. I have my own suspicions about what's causing this. But we know that noise damage causes it. Overexposure to loud noise, especially rock music, will cause tinnitus, especially if you're exposed to it for a long period of time. Typically what happens with tinnitus is um, if you're exposed to a loud noise, an excessively loud noise, you'll get it for a short period of time, but it will go away. If you're exposed to that loud noise again, it comes back. Every time you're exposed to that noise, it comes back for longer and longer periods before it goes away. Eventually it becomes permanent, you can't get rid of it. And it can drive you crazy because you can't hear people over the top of this tinnitus. What I suspect is happening is, apart from it being caused by loud noise, I think in the auditory cortex, a very, very fine, uh, fine neurons and all sorts of stuff in the brain, no one knows really what goes on in the brain, it's just grey matter. But if you starve a car engine of fuel and oil and water, what does that engine do? It starts to malfunction. It starts to vibrate. 
it starts to stop functioning completely. And I think sometimes that lifestyle disease has a big link with heart health, with hearing, heart health, of course, and with hearing loss and tinnitus. I think what's happening is as the arteries close up from atherosclerosis because of plaque build up in the arteries, the blood supply and the oxygen supply to all over your body starts to shut down. As it shuts down, I believe malfunction begins to occur in all the peripheral systems of the body first. The fingers, the toes, the ears, the eyes, the brain. And the auditory cortex in the brain is one of those peripheral systems. I think what's happening is, to be simple about it, they're starting to malfunction as something would do. If you get really hungry, you start to shake. Your body starts to shake to tell you there's something wrong. You need to get some food in your body. And I think the auditory cortex is doing something like that. The, 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 uh, the hearing system, systems in the brain are doing that. And they're sending this signal back down the auditory pathway. And some scientists will say that that signal is a response to the lack of auditory stimulus. It's starting to create this stuff itself, sending it back down the auditory pathway. And you can actually hear it in your ear. You can measure it. You can actually hear it with special machines. And it, it's overriding what's coming into you into your ears. We find in some cases that if we fit people with hearing aids, in 90% of cases the stimulus from the hearing aids appears to alleviate or mask out the tinnitus. So people don't notice the tinnitus while they're wearing the hearing aid. If they have hearing loss and tinnitus together, I find that works in most, most cases. We did an experiment in our practice a couple of years ago with hearing aids that were produced with this uh, tinnitus maskers in them. The Eastern Lou is to generate, that, that the hearing aid generate to try and stop the tinnitus, to override the tinnitus. And we fitted about 30 people with these devices. They all had hearing loss, they all had tinnitus. And we fitted them with these devices, showed them how to activate the tinnitus masker whenever needed. And at the end of the trial, we said to these people, how did you find the tinnitus masker? Every single one of them, 100%, said we never used it. I was shocked by that, and I said, why didn't you use it? I said, we didn't need to. The hearing aid alone was enough to diminish the tinnitus. I mean, that's good news, isn't it? Mm, it is. That doesn't always happen. But in many cases, it appears, to, it appears to do that. And I think if someone's got tinnitus, but no hearing loss, probably just listening to some relaxing music or a motivational speaker through a pair of headphones at low levels just to stimulate the ear uh, will diminish the sensation of tinnitus. Even if you just watch television with headphones on, I think it will have a similar effect. Of course, when you take it off, the tinnitus may come back, but it might not come back for a time, a period of time. So if you do that before you go to bed, you might find you just get a good night's sleep. A person who um, has hearing loss, you said, is more, more prone to tinnitus. Um, and a person who's got damage to their ears are more, are more likely to experience tinnitus. So what are some things that people can do to try to protect themselves against getting tinnitus? Well, the first thing, of course, is hearing protection. Loud noise appears to be a major. So this means putting a set of earmuffs on if you're using power tools? Absolutely. Mowers? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a whole generation of people out there who've who have been in industrial environments for 30, 40 years or more, 
in a period where there was no hearing protection. And they've got tinnitus and hearing loss big time. These are the majority of my patients today. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly keeping the, new, the noise levels or music levels down, especially these kids who drive around in cars with booming speakers and the windows are just about coming out of the car. Yes. There's been quite a bit of research done into that and I find that one of the reasons kids do that is because the, the effect on the auditory system and the whole nervous system of this pulsating, repetitive, rhythmic beats is it has the same effect on the body as taking drugs, taking speed. And it's the addiction to that feeling because you're, you're, you're hammering that auditory system. What about a person who's got... Um, they're, they're, they're listening to music constantly on their iPod or, or whatever... Is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing, I guess. It depends what type of hearing, what type of music they're listening to. If they're listening to rock music, as most people do, they're doing a lot of damage, not just to their auditory system, but to their, um, their mental and nervous system. Because we know from research that the beats, the rhythm, the disharmonic uh, rhythms in rock music is damaging to the, the whole organism. So to sum up, a person can protect themselves by suitable protection for their hearing. Yes. That is not listening to loud music pulsating in their ears, um, avo avoiding the use of power tools without hearing protection, and taking care to ensure that they, they, don't, they get adequate stimulation for the, for, the, for the hearing system, but at the same time they can also maybe look at the possibility of a hearing aid to help alleviate tinnitus if they do get it. Are there any other treatments that yes. might help with a person with tinnitus? Yes, there's been quite a bit of research coming out now related to heart health that has an application to hearing loss and tinnitus. Tell me about that. Okay, the research on heart health, and I've published an article on this, the research on heart health has shown that as the plaque builds up in the arteries from uh, uh, excess dietary things, everything shut down, uh, the blood pressure goes up, the cholesterol goes up, tinnitus increases, hearing loss increases, and some researchers have discovered that by changing people's diets, they can actually reverse the effects. And one of the spin-offs of the Totally diet, reverse the effects? Yes. There have been a few research studies that have published about these, that have shown that, uh, in fact, I've looked at countries where they don't have the high incidence of lifestyle diseases that we have in Western society. And I've com tried to compare them, so what's going on in those countries that they don't have the high incidence of heart disease, diabetes type 2, um, that type of thing, cancer. What's happening there? And, of course, they discovered that the problem was the diet, the food. It's different, very different. So they said, OK, let's take the diet that these people eat in those countries and give it to people in Western countries who've got heart disease and see what happened. And when they did this, lo and behold, the heart disease appeared to reverse itself completely. The arteries widened up again, the blood pressure went down, the cholesterol levels went down, the triglyceride levels went down. Everything improved. The angina pain disappeared. And one of the things they discovered, which they weren't looking for and didn't expect... Tinnitus disappeared completely. And in some cases, hearing loss also reverted back to normal. 
So we learn now that if, if you adopt this diet, which we've found to be a plant-based diet, primarily vegan, vegetarian, you'll find that it not only helps the heart disease, but you may also find that tinnitus disappears completely. There's no proof of that. There's some research studies that have shown that's what happens, but there probably needs to be more research done on that. But I think, to me, the writing is on the wall. So that's another thing a person can do with tinnitus, to look at their, look at their diet mm. and to make sure they're eating more plant-based foods. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's really interesting. Tell me about some of the things that you've learned about living with profound deafness, because you've been um, profoundly deaf since you were an eight-year-old. What have you learned in your life and also from your studies that might help a person with a, a profound hearing loss? Okay, um, while I was at Gallaudet University, it's very interesting to see the people there, because there's over 2,000 deaf students in that university. It's very interesting. And everyone there has to sign? Yes. And even many of your lecturers are going to be deaf as well? That's right. Many of the lecturers were deaf. They could not speak. The entire lecture was given in sign language. So if you couldn't sign in that institution, you were asked to leave. You had to leave, you had to go somewhere else where you could learn in English like everybody else did. But in that institution, sign language was the main language. And even if you're talking to hearing people in that environment, you had to sign and speak at the same time. But this was a philosophical position, which was basically to try to get the person to be able to communicate in a way that meant positive outcomes for their lives. Exactly. In other words, they weren't, ex weren't excluding forms of communication because they wanted people to have as many avenues of communication as possible. And I guess largely because they want people to experience that third level communication. Precisely. So that, that's Precisely. the philosophy that's behind it. That's the philosophy it. behind it. Because if you look at the history of deaf education, if you go back 100 years or more, even before that, even 200 years ago, you found in the United States they had schools for the deaf. The teachers in those schools were deaf themselves, most of them, and they communicated in sign language as the first language, the first most effective medium of communication. They didn't have hearing aids in those days, so sign language was the only method. And it worked very well. They had deaf people in many walks of life. Okay, they couldn't attain to some levels, but they could attain to many. They had, if you like, that third level of communication. An interesting event occurred around the period of Charles Darwin, the evolutionist, and Alexander Graham Bell. They were contemporaries. They were friends with each other. And... Um, Alexander Graham Bell, surprisingly, had a wife who was deaf, and he communicated with her in sign language. As he became friends with Charles Darwin and learned more of his evolutionary theories, Darwin convinced him that they must not allow the deaf community to congregate together and use sign language, because if they did, they would intermarry together and it would end up creating a deaf race of people. We know today that that's not correct. Genetically speaking, that's not correct. It's not supported by science. But in that era, they believed this, and they became so animated about it, they felt they had to go around the world and close down all the deaf schools. Being so pow such powerful and, and uh, influential men, that's exactly what they did. And interestingly enough, 
Bell was trying to invent a hearing aid for his wife when he accidentally invented the telephone. The telephone was an accident. And, of course, that took off, made him world famous, made him very, very wealthy. We don't know what happened to the hearing aid, whether his wife ever got that or not. But he got enamored with, with um, Darwin and went around the world convincing educators and politicians that this deaf sign language stuff had to be stopped. When you look at that today, it was just plain racism. Mm. That's what it was. But they succeeded, unfortunately, in closing down many deaf schools and, and, and um, bringing in teachers who had normal hearing, who knew nothing about sign language, and they were going to teach deaf people how to communicate using the normal methods of speech and hearing, which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it. How can you speak if you can't hear? But they forced this upon the deaf community, and of course there are some people who did succeed at it. They did have enough residual hearing to manage to cope in that environment, and they get by. But the point is, what everybody seemed to forget or didn't even, weren't even aware of in those times was that much of that communication, because the vocabulary was limited, was basic or maybe intermediate. Very rarely did the communication diet of the hearing-impaired person forced in that environment ever get to the third level. They couldn't use sign language. They were forced to sit on their hands in schools. They were punished, physically punished, if they were caught using sign language. They were forcefully uh, separated from one another. They put them into mainstream schools for hearing people to try to integrate them into a normal society. And for some of these kids, yes, it did succeed. In my case, it would succeed quite well because I'd, I wasn't born deaf. I lost my hearing at the age of eight after I'd acquired language acquisition. That's a key point. But if you're born deaf and you're profoundly deaf from birth, you've never heard, how do you acquire language? You have to acquire it visually. So the point is, those early deaf educators had, uh, before Bell and Darwin, had a third level of communication in their diet. Now after Bell and Darwin had done their work, and for many years, that was not the case. We had a large number of deaf people, profoundly deaf from birth, who had lousy communication diets. And, of course, they were socially unintegrated. They couldn't get work. Many of them ended up in welfare institutions, unemployable, treated like people with uh, intellectual disability, shut away in institutions. It was terrible. I could tell you some terrible stories. So you're saying that a person with a profound hearing loss really needs to have as many different forms of communication as possible. Absolutely. That's the attitude of total communication in deaf education, which I had at Gallaudet. This was expressed because everybody on that campus used sign language whether they were talking to a deaf person or a hearing person. So what's the situation today? It's much better today than what it has been. When I was working for the Deaf Society in New South Wales, we had the privilege of setting up an organisation called Deafness Resources. And that organisation uh, was, was uh, managed by the deaf community who saw this great need. They wanted to get information about total communication out there to the community who were locked at that time into oral communication methods. No science, just speech and hearing. And, of course, they had the ENT specialists and the, and the managed politicians were all behind this kind of thing. They had big campaigns, they raised lots of money for it. But the deaf weren't getting a say in that. They were excluded from the decision-making process. We hope change that attitude by bringing these resources into the country, spreading them all around the country by mail order, slowly educating people. So today, people have a much wider choice of deaf education methods. 
And of course, now you've got technology to help as well. So it's a much better situation today for schools. We see hearing impaired and deaf kids integrated into schools. Interpreters are made available. The Australian government today regards sign language in the same category and entitled to the same rights as any other ethnic language. So the attitude today is a, a far cry from what it has been over the last, you know, 100 years or so. I'm Barry Harker and I've been talking with Graham Weir, hearing rehabilitation specialist about coping with hearing loss, hearing aids and tinnitus. Graham has also shared his views on profound lifelong deafness, the use of sign language, heart health and hearing. And after we come back from the break, Graham is going to talk with us about how family and friends can support someone with a hearing loss. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and my guest is Graham Weir. Graham is a hearing rehabilitation specialist and he's been talking about a number of different dimensions about deafness, including coping with hearing loss, hearing aids, tinnitus. Um, we've also looked at heart health and we've looked at um, communication methods for people with a profound disability. In this remaining time, we're going to be talking about how to support a person who has a hearing impairment or disability, and uh, we'll also be looking at how to meet the challenges of hearing loss, because almost all of us are going to face this challenge at some time in their lives, aren't we? Okay, Graham, how do we support a person with a hearing impairment, or they're losing their hearing, or they've got a severe disability, how do we support them? The first thing to remember is that the communication rules need to change. For most of us, hearing loss occurs later in life. We've grown up with normal communication, normal hearing. We've been able to talk to one another from the other room, the head back's turned, the head in the cupboard, music blaring, TV on, all this kind of stuff, and get away with it. But when you have hearing loss, typically the hearing initially will drop off in the mid to low frequency, mid to high frequencies. What that means is you still have fairly good bass hearing, but the hearing in the treble is not so good. So the high frequency sounds tend to get masked out or covered over by the lower frequency sound. So you can't talk to people anymore from the next room or with the head in the cupboard or with background noise going on because if you do, you get some funny answers. And people will have to keep asking you to repeat, repeat, repeat. So the first thing to do is remember to get the person's attention before you speak. Uh, typically, preferably stand in front of them and articulate normally instead of trying to talk to them with their back turned all the time. Uh, one of the biggest frustrations in marriages that I encounter in my practice 
was coupled is as I say I talked to him and he, g- he gave me a, a final response or the hearing impaired person will say I've got to say hey what I've got to go look for the wife find out where she is and of course he says where are you and she says here where's here can be anywhere in the house and he finally finds her and then, and then he's the one that has to go and chase her to find out what it was she said when really they need to work together if she realises she can't do those things anymore, she's got to get his attention before they speak, uh, look at him face-to-face, make sure the TV is down to a reasonable volume or there's not much background noise happening in order to get a, a, a good response. What are, the other, what are the other sorts of things you're talking about, just making sure that there's face-to-face communication? Mm. What else can we do? Uh, for males, if they're talking to someone or to a hearing-impaired person, female or otherwise, to make sure if you have moustaches or beards, make sure your entire lips can be visible mm-hmm. for visual clues. It's amazing in my own experience, because I depend so much on this, it's amazing how if a person has a moustache, if that moustache uh, obscures the top lip, especially the corners of the top lip, it's almost impossible to lip read that. Mm. So the lips, the entire lips, the corners as well as the tops and the bottom should be completely visible if you're going to wear moustaches or beards. So this means that if you're a presenter, a media presenter, or you're doing seminars, workshops, that it's important if you've got a person with a hearing impairment to make sure that they can see your lips. Yes. And that you're not talking while you're writing on a whiteboard. That's a big one. And that's the thing that contaminated much of my education, where lecturers talking while they wrote on a blackboard. Mm-hmm. Talking at the board, not talking at the class. That's a killer if you've got a hearing problem. So if you're talking when you're walking sideways, if you've got an audience, and you're talking sideways, there's going to be someone in your audience who's going to have trouble picking up what you're saying. That's right. The difficulty with that concept is if you're walking down the street together and you've got to look at the hearing impaired person to talk to them, someone better look where they're going. I remember when you visited me years ago, uh, I switched a torch on and put it on my lips so that we could walk at night and we could have a, we could have a conversation because you could see my lips, we were able to converse, but if we went for a walk in the dark it was hopeless because you need not only to be able to hear but you need to be able to see my lips when I'm, when exactly. I'm talking. exactly. So just to be aware that if you're presenting, there may be someone in your audience or your congregation who will be hard of hearing and will find it really difficult if they can't see what they can't see your face and see what you see what you're saying. Yes, and if you're a presenter, a media presenter, or a preacher, and you're preaching, it's important not to pace up and down. Yes, pace up and down the stage constantly, speaking at a tremendous rate. It's impossible for a hearing impaired person to follow that. Stay in one place where if you do move, move around slowly, make sure you continue to face the audience. Don't pace up and down and talk at 100 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. People just get lost in that. So it's really important then that if you're trying to communicate with a person who has a hearing impairment, you you don't try to talk to them from a distance, behind their back or from another room. Exactly. That you you go and stand in front of them and try to communicate that way mm. so that that's less frustration for everyone then, isn't it? Exactly. 
the person who's hearing can, can communicate effectively. The person who's got the hearing loss also has the option of, uh, of, of hearing and communicating. If you have a mild to moderate hearing loss, you may get away with communication that's not face-to-face. Uh, it, may be, it may be okay. But if you've got a severe to profound loss, these things are critical. Now, for many folk who have mild to moderate loss, getting a hearing aid solves much of the problem. They can find they can go back to communicating the way they were before. That's great if you can do that. Now, some people have very soft voices. Exactly. So if you're in a context where there's a lot of background noise and they're speaking very softly, it can be difficult to hear them. So one of the things would be to make sure you keep your voice up yes. when you're talking to people. Yes, and don't let it fluctuate too much. Keep a fairly even volume level. And not to shout at them? Exactly. Shouting is very intimidating. It gives the impression of aggression. And for some folk, they have a soft voice, and unfortunately, when they raise their voice, it sounds aggressive. Mm. But they may not mean to be aggressive. And, of course, it's, it's hard for the hearing-impaired person to realise that the person is not necessarily aggressive just because they're shouting. Their facial expression may give the appearance of being aggressive, but they, in fact, but they may, in fact, not be that way. I've got to keep reminding myself of this with my poor wife who has to often raise her voice and shout to get through to me sometimes in difficult listening situations. I've got to keep reminding myself there's no aggression here. They're just trying to talk to me. Hmm. Very important. What about when you're driving, obviously? Yeah, when you're driving, that's a big one. During the day, if I'm driving, I don't talk. Yes. If my wife is driving, we can talk because she can look at the road. But I've got to look at her and make sure her hair doesn't fall in front of her lips, mm-hmm. which happens sometimes. Diane's very cooperative. She, she ties her hair back or she makes sure she combs it in such a way that it doesn't fall in front of her lips. And so if I'm on the side in the car, I can understand her reasonably well. At night, it's impossible. I can't understand a thing she says in the dark hmm. while she's driving. Very, very difficult. If we're in a suburban area with streetlights, okay, you're managed, but normally it's almost impossible to have a conversation. And if I'm in the back seat, of course, totally impossible. I find that when I'm driving, my uh, third-level communication with my wife often takes place if we're driving at night when, when you're talking um, because you can't go anywhere else. That's you know, right. So, so you, you, you do that form of communication. If you've got normal hearing, you can do that. And you can listen to the radio while you're driving. Many hearing impaired people can't do that anymore. What about... We, let's go back to the social situation. You're in a restaurant or there's a lot of background noise, where it's very difficult for the person with the hearing loss, what can we do in those contexts? There's a lot you can do, but one of the things you can do is try and find a seat in that restaurant, which is perhaps in a quiet corner, uh, where the hearing impaired person uh, maybe faces the corner, and the people speaking to him are in the corner, speaking out. That's one little thing you can do. But also, one thing I find very helpful in restaurants, because if you wear very high technology, expensive hearing aids, you can get very, very good background noise control. Mm -hmm. It can technologically reduce that background noise to the level where you can actually function. But cheaper hearing aids don't have a very good level of that technology. But one of the things that's most helpful to me in that environment is the realisation that when I go into that environment, I'm not going to be able to have much third-level communication. I'm going in there with the expectation that my conversation with people is going to be primarily superficial, Mm. and we cope fine. My wife gets the opportunity to have third-level communication. She's got normal hearing. That's great. 
that privilege is hers. I don't want to deny her of that privilege just because I've got a hearing loss. I won't avoid going to restaurants just because I've got a hearing loss. Because my wife appreciates it. She can talk to people. We've got to work together. And you can catch up with all the news later. Exactly. I don't have to talk on a meaningful level in a restaurant. Now, Graham, we've talked about how we can support a family member or a friend in an individual conversation or in a context of a, a restaurant, something of that nature. What about in the public domain? I understand now that um, there are audio loop systems in some banks. Usually they're on trains. Uh, some businesses are getting on board and ensuring that they've got loop systems, audio loop systems, so that if they've got a person who comes in with a hearing impairment, they can actually hear what's going on. We talked on the last occasion about uh, visual alarms for a person who's, if they can't get an auditory alarm, they can get a visual alarm. So there may be contexts where that's appropriate, public buildings and so forth. You also mentioned to me that it's important for the person with a hearing aid to actually wear it. Exactly. Because some people get frustrated and take it off. So it is important, isn't it, to make sure that you Absolutely. wear that aid and that just makes it easier for other people to Absolutely. communicate with you. So many hearing impaired people forget that they need to make themselves user-friendly. Hmm. It's not just their own disability, it's the community's disability as well. They have to try and communicate with them. And by not wearing the hearing aid, it causes enormous frustration at home, it causes problems in the community as well with the people I have to deal with. And I understand the problem because people often take their hearing aids off because there's something wrong with the settings in the hearing aid. They're too loud, they make too much background noise, they're uncomfortable, they're itchy or whatever. It's an encumbrance. It is an encumbrance. So it's important to go and get that fixed. You've got to get that fixed. You go back to the, the hearing specialist and you get the thing fixed. Don't just leave it in the drawer and forget about it. So everyone can play their part in this. Absolutely. So that the person with a hearing impairment or a severe hearing loss can actually participate not only in the family environment but also in the community as, yes. as much as possible. Yes, um, audio loops have been around for a long time, mostly in theatres, and they're still around in theatres, and churches, many churches have audio loop systems. One of the problems with audio loop systems nowadays is becoming an old technology. And I've found also in my experience that many audiologists forget or neglect to tell their patients about audio loop systems or to install the telecoil system in the hearing aid to switch it on so they can interface with the system. I find so often in churches, for example, that there are people there with hearing aids who wouldn't have a clue what an audio loop is. They don't know how to switch it on in their hearing aids. Half the time the thing hasn't even been installed in their hearing aids. So there's a big problem with that old technology. So everyone has to play their role in, that's right. in making life better. Yes, that's right. Graeme, you've, you've had to face a severe hearing loss, profound hearing loss, for a number of years. Just briefly, how can, how can a person with that sort of loss approach, approach life? How can they cope with that sort of loss? What are, the, what are the basic principles for dealing with that? Well, as a Christian, I look at Romans 8.28 that says, All things work together for good for them who trust God. If you don't know God, you've only got your own resources to, to combat this disability. And we can give technical resources, we can give counselling hints, we can give ideas and how to cope with these things, but really, you have to have a gratitude attitude for what God has given us. 
And in my own case, I fought my hearing loss for many years. Why me? Big chip on my shoulder. Angry. Everybody else should make adjustments for my hearing loss. After I became a Christian, I realised that wasn't right. I need to make myself more user-friendly. And I could draw on resources of God's word to give me encouragement. I now see myself as an instrument of God. Okay, I'm hearing impaired. He allowed that to happen. He could have stopped it from happening, but he allowed it to happen. So by putting my hearing loss in God's hands and saying, Lord, you use this so it make me a better person, a person more able to help other people because of this hearing loss, then my attitude now is I'm a helper instead of somebody constantly demanding help of other people. I don't want to be a hindrance in other people's lives. I want to be a compliment to it. I want to encourage other people. And if you have God's word to draw on to encourage you to do that, which is what Christ demonstrated in his own life, then you have some hope for the future. You have an ability, you have a supernatural power you can draw on to give you resources not only to cope with your own disability, but to help other people cope with theirs and to see things in a much bigger perspective. Thank you, Graham, and thank you for sharing your story and also some of the insights that you've gained over years of working as a hearing rehabilitation specialist. I hope that these um, thoughts will be helpful to people if they've got a hearing loss and they're looking to get a hearing aid or if they've got tinnitus and they're looking to do something about uh, resolving the situation or if they've got a member of the family who really needs some additional support and assistance. Thank you for all those insights that you've given us. I'm wondering now if you'd like to just close our second conversation with prayer. I'd be happy to. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the life that you've given us and for the price you've you've paid to redeem us from the old ways. Help us to understand the new ways that you've offered us. So your word, you've promised us not only life on this earth, but eternal life, free from all kinds of disabilities, forever to work and walk with you in the earth made new, the universe remade. We have much to hope for beyond this life. Help us to see you in your word, a great promise for the future and a promise today to cope with it. Help us to be more useful in our life not only to cope with the disabilities and the hindrances that hinder us in this world of sin, but to move forward to help others, to put ourselves in a position where we can be used by you, no matter what our disabilities. For surely it is not our disabilities, it is not our abilities, it's our availability that matters to you. So please bless us, use us in your service. Bless all those who hear, that they may also develop a gratitude attitude, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Graham. My pleasure. It's been great to talk with you and to spend some time with you again. Thank you, indeed. I'm Barry Harker, and I've been talking with Graham Weir, hearing rehabilitation specialist, about coping with hearing loss, hearing aids, and tinnitus. Graham has also shared his views on profound, lifelong deafness, the use of sign language, heart health, and hearing and how family and friends can support someone with hearing loss. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.